This is the Morning Press, a BrainIron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today, Thursday, February 15th, 2024. Democrat Tom Suozzi on Tuesday won the special election to fill the House seat formerly held by Republican George Santos, who was expelled from the House by colleagues late last year. The result narrows the Republican House majority to 219 to 213, meaning that Speaker Mike Johnson can only afford two GOP defections on any given piece of congressional action that he hopes to get passed. There are three special elections scheduled, one each in April, May, and June in New York, California, and Ohio, respectively, to fill the remaining three vacant House seats, none of which are expected to be particularly competitive, with a Democrat expected to win again in New York and Republicans favored in California and Ohio. This means that the balance of power in the House is set for the remainder of this session, barring a surprise resignation or health emergency. Also on Tuesday, the House of Representatives voted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, 214-213, with the return to Congress of Louisiana's Steve Scalise giving Republicans the additional vote they needed after they failed to impeach Mayorkas last week. Two Republicans and two Democrats missed the vote, three because of travel delays and one because of a positive COVID-19 test. The House will present the charges to the Senate at the end of the month, but there's little reason to expect that an actual trial will take place. Any senator can call for a vote to dismiss the charges by simple majority, and the Democrats are in the majority. Even if a trial were to take place, a two-thirds majority would be required for conviction and removal which will not be forthcoming. A brief editorial aside, if the result of Tuesday's special election to fill New York's 3rd Congressional District House seat says anything about the upcoming November elections, it is probably limited to a reinforcement of the current conventional wisdom, that Democrats will regain control of the House. One need look no further than the retirement announcement of House Homeland Security Chair Mark Green, a Republican of Tennessee, to gauge the vibe— Green holds a powerful committee chair, successfully helped push through the Mayorkas impeachment, and doesn't see the point of continuing on in Congress. As he told Axios yesterday, quote, This place is so broken, and making a difference here is just, you know, just it feels like a lot of something for nothing, end quote. And that's a guy in the majority party with an important chairmanship, He joins four other Republican committee chairs who have announced they aren't seeking re-election, a surer sign that the House is going to flip than any collection of polls can reveal. Being the opposition party in a divided government, as the House GOP is, can be a powerful political position if the party has a clear idea about what it wants. In a functional Washington, they would be able to push the Biden administration and the democratically controlled Senate rightward on any number of policy goals. The problem is that when presented with an opportunity to get something like what it wants, a strong border security package in exchange for foreign aid to Ukraine and Israel, for example, its commitment to opposing the Democrats no matter what supersedes all imaginable policy goals. There are any number of electoral, structural reasons for their insistence on not being part of anything that resembles governing, including most obviously that the overwhelming majority of Congresspeople have nothing to fear in terms of a challenge from actual political opponents, 
and are only truly vulnerable to primary challenges from outraged co-ideologues, who present themselves as more pure than those who might be compromised by actually having to vote. So when the popular mood shifts enough to swing the few remaining seats back to the other side, as it will this November, it will serve mostly as a relief to Republicans, who have proven that they are much more comfortable in the minority than the majority. No wonder the ones who have risen to leadership positions over the course of long careers are no longer interested in sticking around. They foolishly thought they went to Congress to do something. But doing something, anything at all, in government, beyond weirdo conservative social projects, is now the exclusive domain of the bad guys. If that sounds like a curious way to wage a culture war, you're forgetting the most important aspect of any culture war. Each side must establish that the other is corrupt, morally bankrupt, and, most importantly of all, hegemonic. You can't be seen as having any determinative power in the system you insist must be destroyed. The moment you reveal any, your co-revolutionaries will have your head first. In briefer news, Ohio Republican Mike Turner, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, on Wednesday asked the White House to declassify all materials related to a grave national security threat ahead of an already scheduled meeting between the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and so-called Gang of Eight lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Turner was not specific, but subsequent reporting on the matter suggests that his is a concern about Russian capabilities and potential plans to put a nuclear weapon in space, not to fire back at Earth, but as a weapon against other satellites. A brief editorial aside, a thing that is unpleasant to see flash across one's phone in the middle of the afternoon is a dire, non-specific threat to national security that a usually not-crazy congressperson wants the whole country to be made aware of. Hey Mike, not cool. True the Vote, a conservative vote monitoring outfit based in Houston, Texas, told a judge in Georgia that it had no evidence to support its claims that the 2020 presidential and Senate elections were rigged in the state. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger had taken the group to court to try to get it to produce evidence it claimed to be in possession of that a campaign of illegal ballot stuffing had turned the results of the election from a win for Trump and Republicans to a win for the Democrats. A judge ordered True the Vote to hand over names and documentary evidence of any fraud, but attorneys for the organization told the judge that they had nothing to share. True the Vote had also claimed that they would not violate the confidentiality of their sources, but when asked to hand over proof of even just the confidentiality agreements, it could not. The allegations made by this group provided the backbone for much of Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules film about alleged election fraud in the 2020 election. A spokesman for Raffensperger said the following, quote, Once again, True the Vote has proven itself untrustworthy and unable to provide a shred of evidence for a single one of their fairy tale allegations. Like all the lies about Georgia's 2020 election, their fabricated claims of ballot harvesting have been repeatedly debunked. End quote. 
Police in Missouri are slowly working out a motive for the shooting that took place at the end of a parade celebrating the Super Bowl victory of the Kansas City Chiefs, in which one woman was killed and 22 people were injured, half of whom are under the age of 16. No charges have yet been filed against the three suspects who have so far been arrested, two of whom are juveniles. Police are suggesting that some sort of personal dispute among just a few people might have been the impetus for the shooting rather than any intention to terrorize or otherwise cause mass death and injury. Now, here's a look at the weather. John Stewart returned to his old desk at The Daily Show on Monday night for the first time since he left the program in August of 2015. It was good. He's very good at, you know, the version of this that he does. He spent 20 minutes or so talking about how both of the likely presidential nominees are quite old, and how one is pretty demonstrably worse than the other, and how it's actually important to reckon with the reality of one's own preferred candidate's weakness, if only because if one gets the outcome one wants, that's the world we'll all have to live in. Just because it's preferable to the other outcome doesn't make it automatically good. I agree with this point, and in fact, spent much of last week making it first, which highlights a sort of meta-problem with the sort of traditional newscast that Stewart both mocks and performs, but we'll leave that aside. And I don't want it to seem like what follows negates any of what Stewart said the other night. Just the opposite. Just as Stewart believes it's important to confront the obvious truth of Joe Biden's age and possible decline, despite Trump being in almost every way just as bad or worse, I think an honest assessment of the weakest parts of things you mostly agree with only serves to strengthen your position, rather than pretending there are no faults at all. The punishing tribalism of social media performativity incentivizes the yas-queening or total condemnation of everything. There is only for and against, only us and them, only the dark and the light. What upsets so many about Stewart's so-called both-sidesism is a feeling that he must hold something at a higher value than the zero-sum reality of who ends up winning, namely, the virtue of reality, of not pretending, of telling the truth. What good is the truth if it means Donald Trump ends up winning is a question that hopefully, by now, answers itself. I'd like to argue with one little throwaway line from the beginning of Stewart's monologue. He says, quote, The Kansas City Chiefs are world champions, which means the decades-long plot in which Travis and Taylor brainwash America into getting, <laughs> into getting routine vaccinations is complete. <laughs> but it was really kind of a no-win for conservatives. I mean, if the Chiefs lost... Who wins? The People's Communist Republic of Gay Pelosi Stan. <laughs> it's almost like the right's ridiculous obsession with politicizing every aspect of American life ruins everything. It's almost like the right's obsession with politicizing every aspect of American life ruins everything. The right's obsession with politicizing everything, John? There was an article published at Vice.com on Monday morning with the following headline, quote, Every celebrity at the Super Bowl and what they've said or not about Gaza. 
The subhead said, quote, For those who feel insane staring at a timeline filled with NFL celebrity news while Rafa gets bombed, end quote. In the piece, Beyoncé comes under fire for having screened her concert film in Israel. Usher, for a since-deleted post with an Israel-supportive hashtag. Lana Del Rey, Paul Rudd, and John Hamm, for having signed an open letter to Joe Biden in support of the hostages. And Jay-Z, Ludacris, Little John, and Ice Spice, among many others, are singled out for not having spoken out publicly about the Israel-Gaza conflict at all. This is an article framed as a coping mechanism for an audience that feels insane that celebrities and America as a whole could go on having a good time at the Super Bowl while Israel conducts a retaliatory war in Palestine. That there is suffering in the world means, in the worldview of this article, that it's crazy to be doing anything else besides attempting to alleviate that suffering, or, at least, posting righteously about it, I guess? Is this part of the right's obsession with politicizing everything? Ibram X. Kendi says that there is no action but a racist action or an anti-racist action. One cannot turn on NPR without discovering some new social disparity that is attributable to politics. When Joe Rogan told his podcast audience that he was taking ivermectin, as prescribed by a physician, as part of a regimen to get over COVID, was he politicizing something? Or did the ceaseless articles claiming that he was eating horse paste politicize the issue? When Luke Combs faithfully and reverently covered a Tracy Chapman song, and it went to number one on the country charts, was the right politicizing this fact? Or was it the Washington Post that ran an article insisting that this act of theft and appropriation was indicative of racism and hate? When the Covington Catholic brats got their picture taken, making an arrogant face in the direction of a Native American, who politicized that? Which side of the political spectrum is responsible for an advertisement for Dove Body Wash that insists that girls are uniquely shamed out of participation in youth sports? Who decided that white people selling tacos is racist? Almost daily I read or hear something that insists that this or that thing is actually political or ideological or representative of hidden systems of oppression and power that exert influence on every aspect of our lives. Is it the right throwing soup on the Mona Lisa or covering the Constitution in red powder or blocking traffic? We are told every day that every aspect of modernity is a sin made possible by the colonialist, imperialist domination of land and victimized peoples. Is this the right's obsession with politicizing everything? No. Which is not to say that the right doesn't do the same thing about plenty of other things, almost all of which are dumb, too. But people only complain about politicization when it's something the other side does. When your side does it, it's just being empathetic. It's just recognizing previously dismissed injustices. When a bunch of Ivy League kids complain that the ethnic food they're being offered in the dining hall is a form of racist cultural appropriation and tokenism, they are either overzealous youth or sincerely protecting the marginalized, but certainly not engaged in unnecessary politicization.
No, that charge is reserved for the idiots who think there's a chance the coronavirus might have leaked out of the coronavirus laboratory in China. Science has in many ways helped ease uh, the suffering of this pandemic, uh, which was more than likely caused by science. <laughs> there's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but I, so, I, 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 oh my if God. there is evidence, I'd love to hear it. There's I just don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they I, ask I, those scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan respiratory coronavirus lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. <laughs> and you're like, no, I, you, you, the wait, name wait, of your lab, wait. if you look at the name, look at the name, can I, let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, wait, okay, a, wait, okay. A, wait a second. Wait a what second. about this? What about wait this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. That could be. Politicization is what has made the world so intolerable since Trump was elected, and it has become supercharged since 2020 with the pandemic and the racial reckoning and everything else. Trump certainly didn't help in that regard. He seems to believe that everything from toilets to the path of hurricanes are inherently political. But it was the reaction to his presence that made everything worse. The true Trump derangement has been the wholeheartedness with which our whole culture has committed to finding the political weight of everything, and to accuse anyone who insists that it doesn't have to be that way of living in a land of privilege and aloofness. Was it the right's obsession with politicizing everything that turned The Daily Show from a light-hearted, absurdist skewering of television news into a highly political issues-oriented show, and in the process transformed all of late-night comedy before its host took off for Apple to make an explicitly politics-oriented show? Of course not. This is not just an obsession of the right. It has subsumed us all. The air is thick with it, from PTO meetings to Little League games to late-night talk shows to superhero movies. And to blame the polluting effect of it on one side is to run up to one car on the highway and blame it for all the smog. This is not both sidesism to recognize this obvious fact. It is pointing out that the intolerability of our current moment is a product of everyone making everything about politics while pretending that they're the only ones acting in good faith, that only one's enemies are engaged in low politics while you and your co-partisans go about the thankless work of doing good. 
Worst of all, when everything has political weight, when changing a social media profile picture or believing in the science or one's late-night television habit signals political virtue or action, it makes the actual work of material improvement of the world around us that much more impossible. What do you mean, what have I done for my community? I'm reading the news. I'm engaged. I'm playing this video game or watching this television show or keeping up with politics on TikTok. These are all political acts now, remember? I just helped the gay kid ask his boy crush to prom in my Spider-Man game, and I'm exhausted. Thank you for making this possible. Holy crap. You really got Spider-Man in on this? Best day ever. Anything for love, guys. Happy for you both. Enjoy homecoming. The politicization of everything isn't something the right did. It bubbled up from all of us. Some perfect storm of our media and our devices and the algorithms and our stupid psychological tribal incentives. And it's not so much that it's bad. It's not so much that it's bad as it's hurting America. <laughs> so I, I wanted to but come here today let me, and say... Wait, wait, no, I just, no, let me... Here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> stop, 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 stop hurting America. Okay, now, That's man, the weather from here. How's it look out your window? The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to BrainIronPodcast at gmail.com. For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find The Morning Press at brainiron.substack.com, where, if you would like to support this and the other podcasting and blogging endeavors of the BrainIron.com media empire, you can also become a paying subscriber. If you can think of anyone else who might enjoy whatever it is we're up to around here, please consider sharing. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, we'll talk to you tomorrow. The proceeding was created with 100% human content.